zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Private Lessons, released June 10th, 1981. It was written by Dan Greenberg, based on his own novel, Philly, directed by Alan Meyerson, with uncredited work from James Fargo, and released by Jensen Farley Pictures. One day earlier, Natalie Portman was born. Happy birthday, Natalie Portman. In 1969, Dan Greenberg's novel Philly was published. It was inexplicably optioned by Universal the same year, with Harry Keller attached to produce, and Greenberg brought on to adapt his own work. In 1975, the option was bought away by Vision Features Corporation, and then in 77, Paul Bartel, the attached director at the time, brought the project to Barry and Enright Productions, who would purchase all rights, with Universal retaining a small profit participation. Jack Barry and Dan Enright made a name for themselves producing television quiz shows, and this would be their second feature after the Canadian release Search and Destroy in 1979. This also marked Jack Berry's final foray into feature films after the film sparked a brutal public outcry and a sudden flurry of hate mail. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I don't know who read the script in the first place, or the book, rather, and was like, you know what? We need more of this. Horny people did. <laughs> That's what happened. Oh, Lord. This is why men should not be in positions of power. This is correct. <laughs> the production budget was set at $1.65 million. In 1980, during production, the title changed from the book's title, Philly, to Private Lessons. The production was expected to take over 28 days, but 18 days in, lead actor at the time, Neil Barry, was replaced, resulting in a near doubling of the timeline, with 26 shoot days added to the end of the shooting schedule, and a budget increase of $450,000. Barry's replacement, Eric Brown, had previously been playing the Sherman part, and this marked his feature film debut. So the, the main kid previously was the best friend? Correct. Yeah. Brown was 15 at the time, and consequently the production encountered a number of legal problems. Mm-hmm. Because Wait, he's... Was, sorry, was the previous actor 15? The previous actor was young. I don't know his exact age. Okay, but maybe maybe 18, so maybe it wasn't quite so bad? Let's look it up right now. Neil Barry. When was he born? All right. Good. They shot it in 1980. Well, being 18 was irrelevant. N-E-I-L-L. 65. That's old. <laughs> so he was also 15. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was born in 65, so no. you're saying he's old? No, no, I was saying like, he, he was 65 oh, he was years 65 old. years old on the first day no, of no, shooting. No, no. Mickey Rooney and the <laughs> Fallout Boy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they didn't, so they, they obviously didn't switch him out because, I mean, did they say why they switched him out? I couldn't find anything. I think the reasoning must just be they were, his parents were uncomfortable with what they were shooting or the kid was uncomfortable with what they were shooting or they weren't getting the right sort of awkward reactions that they wanted from the kid. He was too good Comfortable with it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that might be one of the issues. Because Brown is in nearly every scene, they needed to petition the L.A. Superior Court for permission to shoot extended hours 
eventually moving the production to Phoenix, Arizona to circumvent labor laws. But because a naked woman is also in most scenes, the production was in danger of being charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Actress Sylvia Christel was forbidden from being photographed nude with or simulating sex with the 15-year-old Eric Brown. But that's all the movie is. To get around this, the sex scenes were all shot in the even more lax city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where kids and naked adult ladies can make movies together without the fear of government overreach. Oh, good. I'm so glad these places exist. (laughs) The age of consent in New Mexico at the time was 16, lowest in the nation. And can I tell you how uncomfortable I was Googling that information? (laughs) Incognito mode. (laughs) I'm not that smart. No, they just save everything you Google incognito and send it directly to the FBI. This is the most juicy stuff. Don't ever use that. (laughs) You should have used DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo is doing the same thing. A director's cut of the film exists that was unanimously deemed unreleasable. A terrifying thought considering what made it into the film. Domestic distributors were uncomfortable with the excessive sexualization of a child, and insanely, foreign distributors were concerned it wasn't erotic enough for the (laughs) European market. In an effort to save the film, director James Fargo was brought on, uncredited, to reshoot about 20 minutes of the film to appeal to the teen market. Supposedly, the reshoots refocused the film from the blackmail plot of the third act to the seductive parts, meaning they made it sexier to appeal to the foreign distributors. Oh my lord, okay. Rather than watering it down. That turn in the film, I mean, we'll get there, but like, I was so confused, so it makes Because they don't don't build it up right at (laughs) the beginning because they took all that stuff out. Yeah, but it's just, yeah, this movie is so disjointed, but it really makes sense with with what you're saying. Yeah. The obvious R rating was not a concern because they knew it would make the film more desirable to young audiences. Obviously, the major studios turned down the opportunity to distribute, as did smaller avenues like Filmways and Avco Embassy. Former Universal VP Mike Ridges left to form ADI Marketing and agreed to distribute himself. In a small test release, the film wildly outperformed all predictions, and suddenly the Big Five were getting back in touch about distributing. They ultimately went with another Mike Ridges-affiliated distributor, Jensen Farley Pictures, a subsidiary of Sun Classic Pictures, themselves formerly a subsidiary of the Schick Razor Company, which we discussed (laughs) reviewing their film Hangar 18 last season. (laughs) Jensen Farley are back to distribute The Boogans later this season. The film was paid for before it hit theaters in the U.S. from the profit of foreign releases. So it was totally, the budget was completely covered from the Japanese and European releases of the film. The film would finish with a box office take of around $26 million, though some sites claim that it brought in closer to $70 million across all markets. I, that's that's an impressive number for this film. Yeah, especially considering the budget here was less than $3 million for the film, for the finished product. A planned sequel from the same author-slash-screenwriter Greenberg, entitled Higher Education, was planned and ultimately scrapped. A later Greenberg script... Private School was sometimes erroneously reported as a sequel to this film during its production, but they are not related except for a common screenwriter, producer, and actress Sylvia Christel as a different character. In 1985, the film was remade in Italy under the title Lola's Secret, aka The Sin of Lola. Another direct sequel, More Private Lessons, aka Private Lessons 2, actually came together in 1993, filmed entirely in Japan, and distributed overseas exclusively, and never made it to the U.S. for theaters or a home video release. Huh. Is that is there like an especially 
favorable market for this kind of content? I don't know. That was where they did the first foreign release w- was in Japan and mm. it and it made like 2 million dollars in a small release with a budget of 3 million total. Yeah. That was a huge portion of what they were making on their first run, so. Though the film did get another unofficial direct-to-video sequel in 1994 called Private Lessons Another Story. According to IMDb trivia, and I could not corroborate this, Dana Carvey provided the voiceover for the theatrical and television ad campaigns. It does sound like him, though I'm 99% sure that this is another instance of someone just thinking, hey, that looks or sounds like so-and-so, and adding it to IMDb trivia without checking anywhere. In fact, a separate trivia entry credits Jay Stewart, who worked as a host of one of Barry and Enright's game shows and is much more likely the narrator than Mr. Carvey, who makes his feature film debut later this season in Halloween 2. That's right, he was in a Mike Myers movie... Before Before he knew Mike Myers. The film starts with a woman's legs sticking out of the passenger side window of a convertible with the top down at night. She's arguing with her date about where he places his hands while they make out, but the guy doesn't respect her wishes, and she laughs it off. But we never see more than just her legs sticking out of the car while we listen to the argument. And who are these people? I have no idea. They never come back. Then we hard cut to a graduation day cake that seems to be placed on a diving board over a backyard pool. A crowded party is in full swing. It seems to be a party for a girl named Joyce, and in the center of the festivities, her graduation gift, a brand new Fiat Spider convertible, is parked with several couples making out against it. But there are also teachers that have been invited to the party? There's chaperones at a private party at a house. On the roof of the house, we see two young men with binoculars, too young to have been invited to the graduation party. The boys are Philly, our lead character, and Sherman, his chubby friend and younger brother to graduate Joyce Below. Philly tells Sherman his sister is hot, and bizarrely Sherman contends that she was hotter before she bleached her hair. Sherman will refer to her throughout the film as a creep. Joyce and her boyfriend are making out so vigorously that they fall into the pool together. Joyce doesn't seem too upset about it, and laughs it off even while her white dress is now completely transparent, allowing her brother and his friend to ogle her brawlessness from the rooftop. Joyce and her boyfriend resume their makeout sesh until a younger member of the faculty, Miss Phipps, apparently invited to chaperone a private graduation party, tells them to do that somewhere private. From the roof, Philly and Sherman agree that Phipps is too uptight, but also super hot. The boys move around the house to follow Joyce and her boyfriend to Joyce's bedroom, but insanely, Philly acts as the stool so that Sherman can stand on his back and watch his own sister change out of her wet clothes. Yeah, are we sure that this is his sister? Yeah. They live in the same house. He calls her a creep all the time. And Philly keeps saying, your sister's so hot. Okay, I guess. Ugh. It's clear already that anyone with a creative hand putting this film together never had a sister or any respect for women, for that matter. (laughs) The boys trade places, and Philly watches Joyce walk around topless for a moment until they're interrupted by Miss Phipps and the other male chaperone. Sherman makes a run for it and leaves Philly hanging, so he pretends he's doing pull-ups on the windowsill when Phipps asks what's going on. Phipps doesn't buy his story, and rather than get upset with him, she offers some advice. The thing is to find girls whose age is more appropriate for you. Yes, ma'am. The camera lingers on Phipps' miniskirt, as though a basic instinct moment were approaching, but she uneventfully stands and leads Philly back to the party to find a girl his age to dance with. Which there wouldn't be because they it's weren't invited. It's a graduation invited. day party. Yeah, they, they weren't invited and there's no one from their grade here. We cut to the next day. Philly is complaining to Sherman that his summer plans got pushed back three weeks because his dad has a last minute business trip. 
Philly's family is rich, so he'll have a chauffeur and a housekeeper to look after him while dad is gone. The housekeeper, Malo, played by Sylvia Christel, asks what he would like for lunch, and Philly tells her that he'll have lunch with dad at the airport, but she can make him dinner at seven. All right then, whatever you say, sir. The second they walk away from Malo, Sherman asks, Think she puts that? I don't know, maybe. Philly says maybe for the gardener, not for the chauffeur, but definitely for him. Sherman tells Philly to send her his way if it doesn't work out. The chauffeur, Lester, played by Howard Hessman but wearing a ridiculous wig, warns the gardener to keep his fertilizer away from the freshly washed car, and he deliberately sprinkles dirt on it. We get a taste for the kind of acting this film will offer. Do you see what you've done here? Yeah. Is that all that you have to say to me? No. You got a pile of shit on that car. Do we ever find out his first name? Who? Lester. That is his first name. Oh. Yeah. I, think, I, think I name. always assumed it was a last name because you, you usually refer to the help by the last name, right? Do you? Uh, in, in the case of a male, yes. Oh, okay. So I was just assuming that his first name was Mo. That would make sense. Because I just figured you were going to write that into the script and then it never came up and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you got to know what this movie's about, yeah. right? Because <laughs> I, I think he says his name is Lester Lewis. Oh, oh does, does he? he say Lewis? I didn't have that anywhere. That makes sense, though. The gardener dumps more in Lester's face as he leaves. We cut to Philly and Sherman in the pool from the party and Joyce comes outside to sunbathe. Philly is happy to watch, but Sherman splashes her until she leaves them alone. He complains about all the time he'll have to spend with her this summer. I gotta go on this goddamn cruise with my parents and my creepy sister. It's the goddamn hula. We're gonna learn the goddamn hula hula. Sherman's elderly housekeeper offers to make them lunch and they pass. Sherman claims she's 110. I wonder what she looks like. What do you mean what she looks like? I mean under her uniform. My housekeeper? No, my housekeeper, Miss Mallow. You're sick. Because it's disgusting to wonder what she looks like naked, but perfectly normal to ask if she puts out. <laughs> but it also, like, the way it came up, you know, it's like, you weren't, like, not, none of the conversations at the pool here were about your Mollo. young, hot yeah. housekeeper. That's not what we were so, talking about at like, all. like, that is such a, like, not related thing. Like, that joke makes no sense. Why, yeah. would, you, why would you even have brought that up? Also, like... If I was seeing this movie in the 1980s, I would have no connection with these kids who who live in these homes with chauffeurs and elevators. Everybody had chauffeurs in the 80s. <laughs> like I was like, I don't understand why the why they are you know, having having a housekeeper. You write what you know, Richard. Yeah, and these like, people are just rich, obnoxious people. That yeah, I guess rich, obnoxious child molesters. At the airport, Philly's dad reminds him that he's the man of the house. Philly and his father both can't help but stare at various ladies in the vicinity while Mr. Fillmore checks his bags. I'm assuming his name Philly is a nickname based on the last name Fillmore, because otherwise this kid's name is Philly Fillmore, or Philip Fillmore, but it turns out that it's his name. His name is Philip Fillmore, <laughs> which sounds like the name an internet poll would give to a new gas station. <laughs> Lester drives Philly back to the house. He parks at the service entrance and makes Philly walk around to set the stage right away that he's in charge while dad's gone. And Philly gives up the fight very quickly. And, and I love that he flat out refuses to walk into the house through the service entrance. Yeah, he walks around to the entrance. In the house, Philly wanders through the halls to a wood panel elevator upstairs and then walks to his bed to lie down. We cut to some time later and Philly is reading a magazine when Malo, the housekeeper, approaches. 
She wants to make general conversation with him and find out what there is to do in this town. Malo keeps crossing and uncrossing her legs and eventually pokes fun at Philly for watching. He leaves embarrassed. Later, he hears Malo ask Lester for a ride into town, and when Philly hears that she intends to change out of her uniform first, I assume this would lead to a scene where Philly tries to spy on her doing that, but instead he just starts flipping through a folder of risque photos in his room, and Malo gets in the car in different clothes. The woman in these photos is model Gia Karanji, who was portrayed by Angelina Jolie in the 1998 TV movie Gia. Karanji passed away just five years after this film's release, toward the end of 1986, one of the first famous victims of the AIDS epidemic. After they leave, Philly heads to her room with a camera and digs through her underwear drawer for a bit. On the way to the store, Lester asks Malo how things are going, and it becomes clear that they're plotting something together. Yeah, at, at this point in the movie, I was wondering why Hessman was in this movie at all. Yeah. I was like, why would he take... He, he was a known actor at this point, well-established. Yeah. It's like, why would you take such a stupid role? It's, okay, there's a larger yeah. plot. It's like Tony Randall and, and fooling around. You're just like, why are you just a butler in this yeah. movie? Yeah, but like, so up until this point, though... Like I thought she was just a creep because yeah. you know she the the switching leg cross legs thing was she was clearly doing it intentionally yeah to draw his eye to, yeah so so like you're just like why are you why are you creeping on this kid like I don't understand what's going on and I really didn't know where this movie was going yeah and, and then the second we got to this moment I was like oh okay so the dad hired her right that's that was my thought immediately. On the way to the store, Lester asks Mallow how things are going, and it becomes clear that they're plotting something together. You seem to be getting along with Philly very well. So when are you going to get it on with him? Lester seems worried that by the time Mr. Fillmore is back, it will be too late. And at first, I thought Mr. Fillmore hired this girl to take his son's virginity while he was out of town. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I still think that. No. That was not the point? No. No. I thought that through the end. Like, no. it, like I thought there was two two stupid plots in this movie and that that one was still true. That's not a part of it That was all. never true? No. No. Oh, okay. This movie is really poorly structured in I addition agree. to being creepy yeah. and awful. And needlessly convoluted when we get to the meat and potatoes of this plot. Yeah. But yeah, like, like five-sixths of the way through this movie. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Malo is uncomfortable with the plan for many reasons. But Lester, he's just a 15-year-old boy. 15 is the perfect age. Just think, you're giving him private lessons, uh, an advanced education. That should have been the sequel title. An advanced education? Yeah. That works. I, I think higher higher education or higher learning or whatever they were going to call it makes sense too. I, I wonder if they would bring Christelle back and have it be another Malo story or if it would be him and the next person that's well, too old for him yeah because maybe she's gotten a taste for it because by the end of the movie it seems to be like she's just into this yeah i'm not sure if it's just this scene but hessman seems completely ADR'd in this car right now lester tells malo that she'll regret backing out of this plan later lester and philly face off again when lester tells him to move his bike out of the driveway and again philly flinches first and surrenders moving the bike at night philly and sherman scale a wall with a camera and binoculars they quickly come up on Malo, changing out of her uniform again, but the two of them can't help but provide color commentary for the whole moment, and she's quickly alerted by the voices outside. They're also very close to the window now, and hiding is useless. And they keep reusing the same, like, diving to the ground sound effect. Yeah. And I was like, ugh. 
and you need another stock sound. Yeah, it's very lazy editing. She puts on a teal robe and turns out the light to rob them of a show. We see Lester standing in the entry hall when out of focus behind him upstairs, we see someone walk by in a teal robe, but Lester calls out Philly's name. And when we rack focus, we see it's actually Philly wearing the same color robe as Mala was in the last scene for the briefest moment of confusion. I was like, <laughs> for sure, that's her walking by. We just saw her wearing that. Oh, no, that's somebody else. Lester tells him that Malo has a bad heart and any unwanted stress could kill her. In the morning, Philly wakes early with an alarm clock and sneaks back outside Malo's room with the camera again. But he's too late and she's already in uniform. Later, he sees her laying down beside the pool, facing down with her breasts out of her top. He tries to sneak a peek covertly, but then the sprinklers come on, surprising them both, and she pops up to flash Philly suddenly, and he falls into the pool in shock. He rides his bike in small laps outside her room, and when he notices her inside, he crashes his bike into a bush. That night, while serving him dinner, Malo asks if he's intentionally avoiding her because she teased him about looking up her dress, but he denies avoiding her. Hours later, he's back outside her room again, this time with a makeshift periscope, and again, she catches him very quickly, but invites him into the room. He's not apologetic at all for being caught, and seems prepared to argue that what he did was fine. Well, well, well. Yes, well, big deal. She tells him that if he wants to see her undress, he should have just asked. The bouncy score, that almost reminds me of the soundtrack for the first Katamari Damacy game, doesn't really make this whole scene less disturbing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I feel like I'm in an elevator at a mall. Yeah. Yes, that was exactly what it was. <laughs> this is a child she's inviting to see her naked. Nothing about this fits the tone of a zany sex comedy. And what I thought was going to happen in this next scene was we were going to see her undressing and his reactions, but never the twain shall meet. Right. They should not be in the same frame together for yeah. sure. I thought, yeah, they're just going to keep cross-cutting. And it's like, okay, that'll be that'll be fine. Yeah. And I was going to be perfectly fine with that because yeah. they would for sure never put them in the same scene together with I her mean, stripping naked. I think even that is a little inappropriate given the age of this kid mm -hmm. if you're implying that this scene is supposed to be funny. Yeah. And yeah. not a trauma that's happening to God. a person. Well, yeah. it gets so much worse than this. Though. Yes, it does. For the whole scene, you're waiting for this inevitable interruption just before nudity occurs, but it just doesn't happen. When her breasts are out, she crosses the room to the actor, practically pressing them into his face and offers for him to touch them, but he passes. This child actor and semi-nude actress are very clearly in the same shot together. There's no camera tricks here. They're in frame right next to each other, and he's looking directly at her breasts. She undresses completely in front of him, even handing him her panties when she is fully nude. For the fully nude scenes, whenever actress Sylvia Christel's face is not visible, she's actually being doubled by model Judy Heldon, her only IMDb credit. Philly is fully terrified by the situation and offers a hasty good night before flying out of her room. It, is that where you were going to bring up the trivia? That was the trivia. Oh, okay. Did, was there more to it? I think it was in a goof, not the trivia. Hold on one second. Okay. <laughs> This is the most ridiculous. In the goofs on IMDb, it says, It is obvious that a body double for Sylvia Christelle is used during the nude scenes. Christelle's nipples are not as protuberant as those of her double, Judy Heldon. <laughs> I don't know how anyone would be familiar with Judy Heldon's <laughs> specifically. But it's just like that's under the goofs. Yeah. Like, 
but they use like you you tried I think that's to just get, someone showing off you tried to get like, a double I right? have I have the Emmanuel series <laughs> memorized I know these nips like the back of my hand like you screwed up because you should have matched the nipples a little right. bit more accurately mm-hmm. <laughs> that'd be an awkward audition session it's just like I just have to see the nipples that's all I have to see that's literally the only thing that matters protuberant protuberant I don't know this word how is it spelled pro protuberant p-r-o-t-u-b-e-r-a-n-t eraser like protuberant (laughs) swelling outward bulging prominent (laughs) or excessive i don't know why it's a perfectly prominent word (laughs) oh these images (laughs) shouldn't have looked that up without (laughs) all the google images of protuberant are the same they're all cristel nips (laughs) I, I, I don't know what this is supposed to be. <laughs> oh, God. Close it. It's like bellies, but then there's like a piece of fruit. Belly rocks. All right. Close it. Close it. Uh, there, there's someone like. Stop. Like a weirdly hairy belly. Uh, God, I think God I use DuckDuckGo. Not a sponsor of this show, but. DuckDuckGo is saving your data the same as anybody else. We cut to Philly riding his bike out to Sherman's house to share the story. So then what? What do you mean, so then what? So then I came here to tell you. Are you kidding me? The next day, Malo stops to ask Philly if he's embarrassed about last night and invites him for another chat tonight. We cut to tennis lessons for Philly and Sherman, where their coach, played by Ed Bagley Jr., advises them to stop peeking into the girls' locker room. I know teens are horny, but these kids seem like sex addicts or something. They're just like, every chance they get, they're literally just wandering into rooms where naked ladies are. Tennis coach is, I guess, a strong word, too, because all he does is let them onto the court where they suck at tennis back and forth. The coach, Mr. Travis, shows up after a few points of the game to offer advice from a balcony above the court. Backhand, Philly. Backhand. Yes, sir, Mr. Travis. They're also talking about what they're talking about very loudly. Yeah. And it's like this. You're, you're There's ye- no embarrassment to it. But But they're clearly yelling about an adult woman exposing herself to a child and no one seems to to react to this. Yeah, that makes it sense. It is 1981. Philly takes his stance but is distracted by, you guessed it, another girl's ass and he misses the ball completely. We cut right to tonight's meeting with Malo. After some searching, Philly has found her in a bubble bath. She asks Philly to wash her back and then manipulates his hands to her front. She invites him into the tub and he eventually agrees to join her in bathing trunks because he's not comfortable without them. He sits in front of her, and her naked breasts are being pressed against his back, the back of a child actor. She starts kissing him and talks him into ditching the trunks when she agrees to turn off the lights. Almost as soon as he sat back down, her hands creep down to his crotch, and judging from his facial expression, contact is made before he is sent scrambling from the tub into a robe to leave. She apologizes, and he forgives her, but she wants proof of forgiveness. How? By sleeping with me tonight. No, thanks. Philly! Why not? Well, I tried it once before in summer camp, and I know for a fact that you can't get a good night's sleep when someone else is in the same bunk with you. As a consolation prize, she asks for a kiss, and he agrees, but when the kiss gets aggressive, he makes a run for it. We cut to Philly pulling Sherman out of the backyard swimming pool and relaying the previous night's events again. Sherman shares with Philly his suspicion that Miss Mallow is a prostitute 
and Philly is quick to defend her from the accusation. And now this was more evidence to me that his father had hired her for this purpose. I mean, we can have this argument at the end, but I'm still not convinced that the dad didn't hire her and and there was a separate plot after the fact. Yeah. I, I might make that argument still. Sherman also accuses Philly of being in love with her. Philly asks if touching a girl's boob at home counts as first base, but Sherman says it has to be on a date. So we cut right to Malo and Philly at the movies together. It seems like they're watching a comedy because the audience is laughing, but again, we hear the woman in the film complaining about the placement of her date's hand, so I'm sure the writer and director thought this was a comedy. Philly is reluctant to drape his arm over Malo's shoulder until she grabs him and places his hand on her chest. Joyce and her boyfriend shuffle by to get to their theater seats, and she's amused to see Philly here with a girl with his hand on her chest. See, I thought this was going to play into anything, something. literally anything. Well, it's weird because I would think that, like, this is generally frowned upon to have this considerably much older woman with a teenager. Yeah, but like, I don't think another kid's going to report it. But he, but they're in a public place where everybody could see that, you know, this is happening. Uh, it's I, just weird. If I saw that happening, I would just be like, "That's a weirdly affectionate mother and son." That's what I would have thought. If if, if somebody had this arm around a much older woman and groping her breast, and it was a teenager, I wouldn't call the police. I would just say that's weird that that's happening. <laughs> okay, not my place to call the police in that situation because I don't know what their relationship is to each other. Maybe he's a midget. Who knows. <laughs> Lester drives them home that night, and they make out in the back seat to Lester's apparent disapproval. Like, he seems bothered by this, even though this is what he needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think he thinks, like, oh, this kid's so so lucky, but he doesn't realize that, like, I set this up. Yeah. They raise the privacy divider. As they enter the house, Philly gets a call from Dad. He just wants to verify that all is going well. Mr. Fillmore has a topless woman in his bed who undresses him throughout the phone call. Phil says, "This is another reason why I felt like the dad hired her specifically because he wanted to call and ask how things are going." No, because he has a prostitute, because or or somebody equivalent in, yeah. in his bed right now. I think you know. I think she's a prostitute. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but like I feel or a mistress. Yeah, general. but I feel like the dad's like, "Well, I'm I'm doing my son a favor. I'm." Going on a quote-unquote business trip, you're going to be alone for three weeks. Oh, so, so you what's think he's happen? not even doing actual business? No, I think the dad's just like, I'm going to give my son this opportunity. Here's three weeks with somebody that I hired who's going to throw themselves at you. Oh, I, I thought that he just took a mistress on a trip and didn't really care about his son. Well, but either way, I feel like that was his gift to his son. Is like, oh, well, here, here you go. Phil says everything's fine and Malo can't talk because she's in the bathroom. He also can't help but laugh as she tickles and licks him, mirroring the silent woman on the other end of the call. The fact that Mr. Fillmore was so eager to wish her goodnight made me worry that Malo already had a relationship with Philly's father first, and that it was going to be like father and son fighting over the woman at the end of the film. Philly and Malo head to her room together and make out some more. Philly confesses his inexperience if she plans on having sex tonight. He wants to preface their lovemaking with a statement. Just like to say... One thing before we start. What? Um, that I respect you. I don't think that you're a, a whore or anything like that. It's very sweet of you, Philly. And then he takes things um, an uncomfortable step further. I'd also say that I, I'm prepared to, to marry you um, whenever you say. Malo has to let him down easy 
and explain that marriage is for people intending to start a family based on a foundation of love. He's disappointed to hear that his love for her is not reciprocated. He leaves in a huff, and we cut right to him telling Sherman that he offered to marry her, and she turned him down. I feel like I would not brag this part of the yeah. story. <laughs> Sherman calls her a whore again, and Philly gets pissed off again. Cue a montage of Malo actually housekeeping, and Philly intentionally avoiding speaking with her. Later in the day, he approaches her in the kitchen and apologizes for his recent behavior, and she accepts the apology. That night, Philly shaves his nose stubble and somehow still cuts himself all over his face. We cross-cut from Philly dressing fancy to Malo doing the same as they prepare for a proper date night. Lester drives them to Philly's surprise date location at an upscale French restaurant in town. The waiter gets weirdly confrontational about their wine choices, and while he offers them a barrage of dessert options after the meal, the camera moves under the table where we see Philly yanking down Malo's panties and tossing them aside. This whole date, by the way, is played under Rod Stewart's Tonight's the Night, which feels like a bizarre choice. There's a lot of music in mm. this movie that is famous music. Like, how did they have the budget for all of these There's songs? There's three Rod Stewart songs. Yeah. There's a Phil Collins song. It, it's, it's weird. I think they, the budget for the, for the soundtrack alone was $100,000. I, I would say at least because I, I would have thought it was more relative to the budget of the movie because yeah. I'm just like, these are all famous songs. The film doesn't really do a good job of acknowledging the age difference between the characters at all. Like she has that one line where she says, oh, but he's only 15. And the guy says, so what? It's fine. But other than that, nobody ever brings up how far apart in age they are for the whole story. Yeah. It's just kind of, it's just a relationship. Let's not focus on the numbers. They go to her room together again where they undress each other a bit and then lay across the bed. We get a lot of really disturbing all one piece inserts of Philly pulling down her top to reveal her breasts and for 15 this kid honestly looks like he could be 13 like he has a really like baby face too. There's no part of what's happening here that's okay. They strip fully naked and roll around together in bed under the covers and consummate the relationship but Malo's moans start to concern Philly and she goes limp. Philly, remembering Lester's words about her weak heart, freaks out and runs through the house looking for Lester. We see her in bed, eyes open, regretting this plot for a bit, and then when Philly and Lester enter the room, she pretends to be dead again, as Lester fakes taking a pulse. I was so confused. So confused at this moment. I'm just like, I... Because we really haven't played up, like, the fact that her and Lester are doing anything together. But, like, the moment he goes and gets Lester, Lester is, like really hamming it up yeah and so you're like what what is happening and you're like but she's not dead like i don't understand what's happening and the second they get in the room everyone's still convinced she's very dead and i'm very confused well i think at this point was when it was falling into place for me because he had told that story earlier it's like oh uh, you better be careful about her weak heart and i was like okay clearly they want him to think that he killed this girl and the only reason they would ever do that is for money so this whole thing was just a scheme to get money out of the kid. When Lester goes to call the police, Philly is worried he'll go to jail for murder and begs Lester to hang up the phone. Don't even call them, please hang up the phone, Lester. I'll do anything, please, just help me. Very well. May I suggest we begin by covering her up? Well, and this is where the plan starts getting like overly convoluted. Yeah. Because... Uh, what crime has been committed 
by this child nothing he was he was mid-rape he was yeah. being raped and the woman died yeah so, so calling the police or the hospital or anything is the reasonable thing to is do. the reasonable right. thing he's not to in do. his right mind though, well either. yeah but they're taking a really big risk in this situation to assume that his reaction is going to be you need to help me cover this up as opposed to right wow we should call the authorities this is really important yeah. i don't know if it's that big a risk because this kid was diagnosed at birth with affluenza like it's pretty clear that he's never dealt with consequences <laughs> in oh, his entire life speaking of which Okay, because I was still super confused because at this point, like, my brain is really trying to force the dad hired this woman. Yeah. And so at this point, I was like, the dad hired this woman and he told her and he as told As soon this, as you close the deal, yeah, die, die and leave. Like, every kid <laughs> before they reach the age of 16 needs to know how to get rid of a dead prostitute. Right. Like, oh, I thought you meant he, <laughs> he needs to know how to fuck a woman to death. No, well, he needs to know how to cover it up at least. <laughs> Oh my God! You killed a hooker. Call girl. No, she was a, Cyril. A when they're dead, they're just hookers. Oh my goodness! What are you doing? I've never seen so many dead hookers in all my life. Lord knows I have. Lester starts emptying a horizontal freezer to store the body. What are you gonna do with all this food? Want it spoil? Would you rather the food spoil or Miss Mallow spoil? I'm guessing Lester already swapped her out in this makeshift body bag because it'd be pretty dangerous to leave a live woman in a freezer like this. They decide that it makes more sense to bury the body in the yard than to leave her in the freezer, so they start digging. They drop the frozen body in a dug hole and get to work burying her. So I didn't understand this part of the plan either. So they put her in the freezer so they could dig a hole. Yeah, there's no reason to put her in the freezer if you're going to dig a hole that night. Just go ahead and dig the hole. But also they have a groundskeeper who's going to immediately notice right. a large mound of dirt in his perfectly <laughs> manicured lawn. And that was my next note, too, that, that the groundskeeper must be in on it because they're mm-hmm. obviously destroying the yard. But later we find out the groundskeeper is not in on it. So yeah. this is just doesn't make any sense that this is happening. And also at this point, why didn't just Lester, I mean, I'm getting ahead a little bit, but why didn't Lester say, yeah, I'll help you get rid of the body for $10,000? Or just say, I got rid of the body, you owe me $10,000, or yeah. I will un-get rid of the body. Mm-hmm. But it's not a super discreet burial either, because they leave a big mound above the grave, like all the dirt that the body took <laughs> yeah. up is on top of the grave. Well, and then beyond that, yeah, <laughs> beyond that, Philly even thinks to decorate the memorial with flowers before they head inside. Like, what, what could anyone possibly misconstrue this as other than a grave of a person? Oh, I often leave mounds of dirt, human-sized, with flowers on yeah. top. I don't kill anybody, I swear. The next day, Philly is astonished to find that the grave has been robbed and the body is missing. He informs Lester, who pretends not to believe it, until the gardener shows up with a ransom note that he found in the flower garden. The flower you two buried had to be transplanted. Leave $10,000 in the flower bed tonight, and it'll be returned soon afterwards. P.S. I hear the police like flowers, too. Now, what did the groundskeeper think when he found this letter? He didn't open it. Oh, he didn't? No. But it was just folded in half, yeah, wasn't but it, it? Yeah. So it wasn't in an envelope. Was it addressed to them? I think it said Philly on it. Mm. But it's kind of like the letter that they gave to Gregory Peck and the Seawolves, where it's like, this is really important information that shouldn't just be on a folded piece of paper. Yeah. Together, they retrieve $10,000 from the safe in Mr. Fillmore's office. Later, when Lester returns to his room, he finds Malo, who he addresses by her first name, Nicole, 
hiding in his closet. She was instructed to stay at a nearby hotel, out of Philly's sight, but she got bored. She admits to feeling some guilt over their scheme, and Lester threatens to have her deported, or arrested as a felon. A felon? Yes. Seducing a minor. That's a criminal offense, in case you didn't know. Are they really implying that she didn't know that, first of all? And second of all, seducing is a really nice word for rape, because that's what she did. And and all of this for $10,000. And I'm assuming they're splitting that money. Right. Uh, Couldn't she have made this money having well, maybe, sex with adults? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> what, why is she having sex with children for $5,000? Well, I don't know if they're splitting the money because he's blackmailing her. That's true. But why did she even go through with the plan? Because if, he's blackmailing her. But, but there's no way out. There, there's, there's nothing that she can give him that will protect her. So if your person says, hey, you better do this or I'm going to do this. And if you don't, I'm going to do it anyway. Then why would you do anything that that person is asking of you? What? I, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't understand. Okay. Blackmail works with you threaten, you hold something over a person's head. Yeah. To get something out of them. But there's, there's, no, there's no reason for her to comply because he's going to do the thing either way, right? Well, she doesn't know that. How does she not he's, know that? He's going to deport her either way? Isn't he going to? Isn't he threatening to do that here, even though she did what he said? Yeah, well, but he's, only if she he's doesn't still cooperate. blackmailing her. If she doesn't cooperate, he'll deport her. And he could, if he in does, theory, he won't. do this forever. Yes. But yeah, he, that's, that's that, what he's doing. And I think that's your point, right? Yeah, my, my point keep... is that it doesn't make any sense. He could just say, now do it again. Yeah. Now do it again, forever. Yeah. Well, so the I, would, I would not do it. <laughs> okay, well, that's you. <laughs> She just really likes kids, I guess. <laughs> it's not usually what that statement means. <laughs> <laughs> not usually. I'm really good with kids. Uh... <laughs> Thor Jif. Is he though? That night, Philly mourns Malo's death beside where they buried her when she appears behind him to apologize. He quickly puts together that this was a scheme to steal $10,000. She tells him that she has switched sides and wants to help Philly get the money back even offering to turn herself into the police. But Philly doesn't want her arrested and makes a plan to stash her in Sherman's potting shed while they plot revenge. The next day, Sherman and Philly take Malo to meet their tennis coach, Mr. Travis. They enlist him to impersonate a police officer. He tries to turn down the offer, but we cut right to him on the porch waving a badge around. <laughs> we don't really explain why he yeah, eventually went along with this. Why would he agree to this? Um, what follows is the most amazing performance great. yeah the best performance in the movie ed bagley jr i feel like ed bagley jr had no idea what kind of a movie he was in and so he's making it so much better by and i'm sure most of this was like improvised oh, just yeah. the way he was doing it he asks politely to come in and when lester says no he pushes in anyway officer travis peppers lester with questions about the missing miss mallow and he claims that she was unhappy here and left for tucson travis claims that he received a tip about foul play Foul play? What do you mean? Homicide. This tip said she was homicided. <laughs> That's absurd. That's absurd. Travis demands to see her room and later checks Lester's room. In the closet, he finds packed bags with some ladies' underwear inside. Lester asks Philly to confirm that Miss Mallow packed these bags and asked him to send them to Tucson once she got settled. Philly laughs at Lester's scrambling. When Travis finds clothes with bloodstains... Why are there clothes with bloodstains? There was a little bit of blood in her mouth when she was faking her oh, okay. death. Mm. 
Lester asks for a couple hours to prove Malo is still alive. At that point, wouldn't he just say, oh, that's not blood. Test it. It's not blood. Well, he, he tried to convince him that it wasn't blood. Oh, that's true. He said it was like spaghetti stains or... Yeah, she liked to eat lasagna in bed, I think he says. Lester asks for a couple hours to prove Malo is alive, admitting simultaneously that she is not in Tucson, as he claimed before. Also, there's subtle hints that Lester may be homosexual. Are um, there? Because he's got a picture of a man who's not him on a desk. Oh, I thought it was him. No, because he said, this is a friend of yours? He's like, yeah, cute. Uh, oh, okay. And he's got and, and like he's got like a like leather gear in his closet. Yeah, I mean he could just be. You know, I did like that line. He's like, "That's cute. You're a cutie pie, Lester." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he smacks him in the face. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, but uh, yeah, again, Ed Bigley Jr.'s great. <laughs> when he's sitting with him on the couch. <laughs> yeah. Travis gives him two hours to produce a living body. Lester heads directly to the shitty hotel where he left Malo. But the man at the front desk tells him that she left for Tucson for real. The man at the desk here is being played by author and screenwriter Dan Greenberg. Philly goes to visit her in Sherman's shed, and even though Sherman seems to have granted them permission to do this, he's watching them through binoculars from a nearby tree. They ask him if they can borrow his family's car, and he says, sure, why not? Sherman lies that he can drive after Philly and Malo admit that they can't, and they nearly collide with cars as they move down the street, knocking over rows of trash cans and swerving through residential neighborhoods, even splashing a motorcycle cop with gutter water. Which I thought for sure was going to entice the cop to follow them. But no. They get off scot-free. And then they murder a guy. Right, yes, they do kill a person. (laughs) Back by his room, Lester retrieves the $10,000 from the base of a flower pot, apparently intending to skip town. Sherman accidentally rams another car off the road into a river, probably (laughs) drowning the other driver. Trying to pull out of the driveway, Lester finds himself blocked in by the gardener's truck, and he takes his sweet time moving because of Lester's incessant honking. Malo and the kids ask the gardener for help, and for some reason Mr. Travis is still pretending to be a cop and joins the chase. Well, yeah, so they, they find the groundskeeper who lazily is named Mr. Green. Right. Uh... They get into Mr. Green's truck, two of them, yeah, just Mallow and Philly. Sherman stays in his car, and then that's when Travis shows up, turns around, and follows after Mr. Green's truck, and then Sherman exits the movie. Yeah, he's gone. <laughs> but he's still trying to drive the car. Right. I was like, I thought for sure any minute now Sherman's going to show up, but he just disappeared. <laughs> yeah, he never made it to the airport. Well, how would he know how to get to the airport? That's true. He doesn't even know how to drive a car. (laughs) (laughs) The first time that Lester called him Green, though, I thought it was just his shitty nickname for the groundskeeper. I didn't realize that was supposed to be his actual name. Lester heads directly to the airport and, by complete coincidence, tries to make his escape through the same terminal that Mr. Fillmore is arriving through. Now, again, he should know this. He should know that because the whole part of the plan is they need to do this before Fillmore comes back. Also, aren't arrivals and departures on separate floors of the airport maybe not in 1981 in whatever city this is it's la is it yeah well i mean it's supposed to be la they're shooting in arizona and new mexico yeah this definitely isn't lax but uh yeah it you would think that he would know when he's arriving because fillmore fully expected him to be there right yeah pick him up because that's the same time he's supposed to pick him up (laughs) When Fillmore spots him, for some reason he stops and apologizes instead of just leaving with the $10,000 he stole. 
Malo, Philly, and Mr. Travis all show up right behind him, but Travis is still playing even though Mr. Fillmore presumably hired this man as a tennis coach. <laughs> like, why, why is he buying that this is a police officer? Doesn't he know this guy? Doesn't he know Ed Bigley Jr.? Maybe he doesn't care that I mean, much. It, he's a rich dude. Do you think he knows his kid's tennis coach? Maybe not. Philly, pretending to be helpful, snatches away the bag with the money, offering to take it to the car, and Lester has to let it go to avoid suspicion. We cut back to the house, where Philly and Mallow make out in her room again. She tells Philly that she thinks she'll have to leave because Mr. Fillmore will surely fire her when he catches them together, meaning that he didn't hire her Mm -hmm. to have sex with his kid Mm. because she thinks she's going to get fired when he finds out about it. Philly offers to forge a letter of recommendation, and they jump into bed together. They fuck once more to another Rod Stewart song, and the next day, Philly waves goodbye to her as Lester drives her away. Apparently still employed by Mr. Fillmore. Uh, (laughs) Why is he still here? This is like Biff working at the end of Back to the Future. Right. It's like, what? Remember when that guy tried to rape me? Why is he washing your car in the front yard? Get rid of him. This is all for $10,000. $10,000. That's like $30,000 now. Like, presumably, the chauffeur makes more than that amount of money. The car that he drives costs more than that. Drive the car away. Yeah, just go take the car. And there had to be, like, easier stuff to steal. Steal in the house and just sell it. And nobody would notice. You could do it over time. Mm Mm-hmm. Was he just planning on burning through the money and then making Philly screw a bunch of more women to death? Right. <laughs> like, well, how did he even orchestrate her getting hired in the first place? Or did he say after she got hired, he found out that she was an illegal immigrant and then said, oh, okay, I can blackmail her into doing this plan for me? I assume everyone that works for this guy is an illegal immigrant, though. Apparently Lester isn't. Because I'm assuming Lester's plan was to continue to work for the family after he's extorted this money. Yeah. Because otherwise, why not just grab the kid and go drag his face up to the Give me $10,000. Give me $10,000 or I'm going to kill the housekeeper. Right. Uh, Oh, yeah. That he only tried to flee because it went south. Yeah. That's what you're saying. But there's so much stuff in this house that he could have just taken and sold while the guy Mm -hmm. was gone. that He could have made that $10,000 easy. Wouldn't have felt like he, he had earned it, though. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. At school, Philly is very comfortable flirting with his female classmates. He literally bumps into Mrs. Phipps, and she pretends that he's changed so much since June that she didn't recognize him, but he looks exactly the same as he did at the beginning of the film. They don't even bother with any sort of physical transformation. He doesn't wear his hair differently or dress differently. He looks the exact same. He thanks her for the advice about finding an age-appropriate girlfriend. Oh, right. How did it go? Oh, it went very well. Listen, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about it in detail. Great, I'd love to. Excellent. Can we discuss it over dinner tonight? Her jaw drops to the floor at the proposition, and she is suddenly so hot for this child that she can barely manage a nod. Philly turns around and smiles into the camera for a freeze frame. The end. So yeah. it's not that he found confidence and that he's going to continue to date women his own age. It's that he's hooked on the older ladies. Mm-hmm. And he's going to stick to that. He's never going to date anyone that's age appropriate. You mean like the age gap is going to age with him? Yeah. I mean, it'll oh. get more and more acceptable <laughs> as he goes, right? Oh, no. I thought you meant it like it's, it's, it's they always have to be 20 years older than me. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. when, when he's 60, it's okay that she's 80. It's like Ray Fiennes and Tilda Swinton in Grand Budapest. Uh, I've had older. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, it's a really weird movie. 
And it's weird that a room full of people would just make this mm-hmm. and none of them would go, is this, is this really weird? Is this too inappropriate? Cause this is, I, and I said in the last episode, this is, I think the horniest script that we've dealt with so far where it just literally feels like a softcore porn that they it made. does it's a real creepy but this is a wide theatrical release that made millions of but dollars like to- totally super weird like it just it, it it try it tries to be a comedy at some spots but it's just too awkward and creepy and then and it has it, this mainstream soundtrack right but then it also just kind of goes into this like weird blackmail story and then like it just doesn't nothing meshes well but yeah i feel like even the musicians on the soundtrack should have been like (laughs) they must have been at the premiere just like wait what oh god my song is in this yeah oh no oh why didn't we get script approval it's like it's just a it's it's just a silly uh, romantic comedy about a boy and and a lady it's like no, this isn't silly. This is this is gross. What's happening? Yeah, I'm I'm sure that they were like, oh no, as they wiped their face with yeah, money, <laughs> just <laughs> soaking up all the sweat. Rod Stewart, especially because he has three songs on the soundtrack, it's he he might as well have been on set at that point. But but enough people at Universal said this is a good idea. That Universal they the was rights. a profit participator throughout throughout, throughout so like, the process not but they but but something held it up at universal yeah. it didn't get made right away which means maybe somebody came in and questioned it but they didn't totally cut ties right and i think mike ridges <laughs> at universal was there for the pitch the original pitch and saw everyone else say no are you kidding you can't make that movie and then when he left the company he's like hey you know what i'm not actually totally against it why don't you come over here to adi and and we'll make that movie for you um and then it's like, oh, I founded a company that's, you know, picking up Universal's leftovers. To him, it's like, you know, he's he's getting street cred for it. Mm. And the movie made a shit ton yeah. of money because there's a lot of perverted people that just wanted to see this story. And it's, I didn't think it was going to go this far. Like, I thought it was going to be more like a blank check type of situation where <laughs> this is a really inappropriate relationship, but it never goes almost it almost doesn't go too far i literally described this movie to someone today as it's like that movie blank check except for the child consummates the relationship with his adult girlfriend uh i just thought for sure it was going to be teasing and you know okay boys talking about girls and wanting to look up skirts and stuff like that it's like yeah okay it's they're creepy but I was even I thought boobs were in the realm of possibility that yeah. that would there would be toplessness. I never dreamt that she would take off her panties and turn around or that they would get naked in a bath together. Right. Mm-hmm. And making hands, physical contact. Yeah. Oh lord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it went so much further than I ever but expected. But like in all of these like montage scenes where like she is just rubbing her hands all over his body. Like, right. That's yeah. just like it's it's not like they're just near each other. Like, yeah. If that happened right it. now in this state, she would be in jail. That's literally a crime here right now. Yeah. But it was okay in New Mexico in 1980. And so now it's a sex comedy instead of a sex crime. Well, so was he 16 by the time they were shooting? I think 16 is the age of consent as in for literal sexual activity. Yeah, but what I, I well, okay, so you're saying that if they didn't actually have sex, that didn't matter, right? Right. Oh. And if and if the parents gave permission, and the state doesn't have any laws against kids appearing with nude women in films, huh. 
Yeah. Real weird. I don't know why Howard Hessman's in this. Yeah. Yeah. And Ed Begley Jr. is like sort of an outside character and he doesn't really play into any of the really disturbing scenes. Right. right. So I understand completely where he's coming from because his sides are just, hey, you're pretending to be a cop and you're catching these people that are that are trying to swindle a kid. But, you know, Hessman's in the room with the naked corpse Mm -hmm. and the kid at the same time. He knew the movie that he was in. It's just very weird. Yeah. Also, I want to point out, this is a total non-sequitur kind of thing. Uh, the ending credits were uh, white text on a blue background. Yeah. And That's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Um, it's not as bad as Iron Eagle, which was yellow text on a blue background. Yeah, that's and, worse. And impossible to read. Yeah. Um, but Mostly because uh, Richard can't read. Yeah. Uh, I can't is anyone else having trouble reading this? <laughs> what are all those lines? Some of these letters are just the same letter upside down. <laughs> That's crazy. Does that say perturberant? Protuberant. Per- protuberant. Protuberant. <laughs> protuberant directed this? Uh, but whenever I whenever I see end credits done in such a like totally non-standard way, I go, why? Yeah. What what, what was this supposed to be or mean? Yeah, what, what inspired this decision? Mm-hmm. That you were driving home and you're like, no, no, no. I got it. Like, this guy had this idea when he was programming his VCR. Yeah. And there was a white menu against a blue background. Mm -hmm. And he was like, this is going to look great with my name scrolling. Obviously, it's still a thumbs up. (laughs) No, it's a thumbs down. Oh, yeah, it's a thumbs down. For sure. Don't watch this. There's nothing redeeming here. And it's actually uh, evidence of a crime. If it's possible to just watch Egg Bagley Jr.'s interrogation scene just watch that but because i it was the only part of the movie that made me smile yeah the Uh, whole whole movie by the way is available on youtube in hd so if you want to watch it there go ahead but uh just be prepared to be led away from your computer in handcuffs because this might technically be child porn i don't know i don't know how those rules work apparently it's also for free on plex uh with ads oh is it (laughs) oh that's right um letterboxed what are we thinking oh boy i i it's really because i don't feel the film is uh badly made it's not it's Uh, that's okay i i'll I'll tell you where to put it it's at 77 out of 77 that where you have it because i never want to watch this movie again it made me feel so icky watching it in the first place yeah uh, I might, I might agree. A hollow scream is not a movie. Yeah, but I would still, if you had to, if you said you had to put one of these movies on right now, which one would you put on? Private Lessons. <laughs> really? You would watch Private Lessons over yeah. Scream? I would put Scream on any day because I'm like, I don't. I if my neighbor watches uh, me watch this movie that is just half a movie that was kind of accidentally shot fine i'm not watching this awful <laughs> scream is just a string out of horror dailies that's fine. it's not even a movie that's fine i don't want to put this child porn on in my living room again yeah <laughs> all right I'm, I'm sort of splitting a difference here i'm gonna put it at 74 uh which puts it below home sweet home but above image of the beast which i, I again i would watch that any day over this i put it at 45 and it's just under high risk and just above Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. <laughs> okay. 
because it's not a poorly made movie and the plot made sense. Um, it's just really disturbing that it happened at all. Uh, the plot didn't make sense to me. Which part didn't make sense? It was it was terribly convoluted. Sure, uh, you're saying that the the plan to get the money was was too much. It should have been like a hundred thousand, or yeah. like a quarter million dollars, or something or, like or, that. Or or he keeps like gold bars in a safe. Or a famous painting is in his father's office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I don't know. It just the this whole movie is just bizarre. That's that's true. I agree with you on that point. I'd, I'd rather watch Charlie Chan. I'd rather watch any of these movies. Put any of them on. I don't know about Charlie Chan. <laughs> that movie's pretty awful. It's just bad jokes the whole way through it. It's very frustrating to listen or to. Or the Jerry Lewis movie. Yeah. <laughs> Our director here was Alan Meyerson. This was Meyerson's final feature directed credit, but he kept working in television on shows like Knight Rider, Miami Vice, Picket Fences, Friends, News Radio, the Larry Sanders show, and most recently judging Amy James Fargo, the uncredited reshoot director had previously done the enforcer and then came back for another Clint Eastwood movie every which way, but loose, not every which way you can, any which way you can, any which way you can. Those two titles will always mingle in my brain. The novel and screenwriting came from Dan Greenberg. He went on to write private lessons too and Private School, also starring Sylvia Christel, which is about boys dressing as girls to infiltrate an all-girls school, which is kind of like sorority boys, basically. But it has, I think Phoebe Cates is one of the girls, hmm. and um, somebody famous is one of the boys too, but I forget now. As I said before, Greenberg also cameos as the hotel manager in this film. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a filmmaker cameo as a hotel manager in his own film? It was a director, not a screenwriter last time. Um, Somewhere in Time? No. I'm trying to think of all the hotel movies. Yeah. He was a hotel guest in Somewhere in Time. That was, that was a very close to correct answer. Um, the Out of Towners? No. The, the one where they do a whole battle at the hotel? It was Maniac. Oh, I wouldn't have gotten that one. Bill Lustig, the director of Maniac, played the manager of the hotel where Frank Zito was bringing his prostitute. The cinematographer here was Jan DeBont. This was his first American film. Obviously, he made a name for himself as a talented cinematographer with credits this season on Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, and Roar. He later lights Cujo, All the Right Moves, Clan of the Cave Bear, Die Hard, Black Rain, Hunt for Red October, and Basic Instinct. When someone pitched Die Hard on a bus to 20th Century Fox, they went right to Die Hard director John McTiernan with a contract, who turned it down but suggested his Die Hard collaborator, cinematographer Jan DeBont. Speed became DeBont's blockbuster debut, and he followed it directing Twister, Speed 2, The Haunting, and Tomb Raider 2. Our editor here was Fred A. Chulak. He edited a bunch of original Hawaii Five-O episodes. His final editing credit was for the Private Lessons sequel in 1993. Sylvia Christel played Malo. She also appears as a teacher in Greenberg's Private School 1983. We just had her last season as Agent 34 in The Nude Bomb. She's also Emmanuel in the Emmanuel Softcore Porn series. We'll see her next in Lady Chatterley's Lover. I'm sure she'll be wearing plenty of clothing. Howard Hessman played Lester. 
He was Dr. Johnny Fever on WKRP in Cincinnati. He's Dr. Faraday in Flight of the Navigator, and he's back later this season in Honky Tonk Freeway. Eric Brown played Philly. He played a very similar role in 1984's They're Playing with Fire, which pairs Brown up with Sybil Danning, who we saw as St. X-Men in Battle Beyond the Stars last year. He's also James in Waxwork, and he was Buzz on 31 episodes of Mama's Family. Neil Barry, who was replaced by Eric Brown, we saw him last as Teenager Number 1 in Hero at Large. If you'll recall, Teenager Number 2 was Kevin Bacon. We'll see him next as Jeff in Amityville 3D, and he also played Greg Parker, who I assume is related in some way to Courtney Thorne Smith's Allison Parker on Melrose Place, but the Melrose wikis are not super helpful. But Ed he, Bagley, sorry. But he's not in this movie, right? No, he's right? not. Oh, okay. Correct. <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> he, he did not make it. He was in some dailies. Ed Bagley Jr. played Jack Travis. Where do I start on Ed Bagley Jr.? He's a Christopher Guest regular. He's famous for his environmental activism. He was nominated for six consecutive Emmys, playing Dr. Ehrlich on St. Elsewhere. He's back for Buddy Buddy later this season. He was Hiram Gunderson on Six Feet Under, himself in a couple Simpsons episodes, Stan Sitwell on Arrested Development, and currently he's Clifford Maine on Better Call Saul, and Dr. Linkletter on Young Sheldon. Bagley Jr. would appear in two more films with Hessman, namely This is Spinal Tap and Amazon Women on the Moon. Pamela Jean Bryant played Joyce. Last season, she was Sue Ellen in Don't Answer the Phone, and she's back this season as Reston Girl in Michael Crichton's Looker. Peter Elbling played Waiter. He wrote a lot of TV material and the screenplay for Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Hmm. He played a waiter in this movie who was forcing desserts on people. Beans Morocco played Green. So far, we've seen him in bit parts for used cars, any which way you can, and loose shoes, where he played the Shaggy Dog studio executive. Linda M. Bass played Woman in Movie Theater Audience, uncredited. She has mostly costume design credits on titles like Earth Girls Are Easy, Field of Dreams, The Net, and later TV series like Dharma and Greg, Grey's Anatomy, Weeds, and more recently, How to Get Away with Murder and Young Sheldon, where she may have reunited with Ed Begley Jr., who was not in her scene from this film. I think that's everything for Private Lessons. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! Uh-oh, patron alert. What? It's one of these times I'm going to wait for you to say, we dropped one. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, it went oh, down? Oh, so-and-so left the group. <laughs> no, uh, this is a new patron, Chris Robinson. As a $5 patron, Chris now has access to 23 70s reviews and 19 minisodes. Thank you, Chris, for helping make the show possible. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll all join us next time when we'll be discussing Clash of the Titans, which IMDb describes like so. Perseus must battle Medusa and the Kraken to save the princess Andromeda. This is the beginning of the good part of 1981, mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen. We've reached the summer blockbusters of 1981, and there's like 15 of them in a row that you're going to want to hear. So... Stay tuned. Don't touch that dial unless you have to touch it to hear the next episode. And we leave you now with a trailer for Clash of the Titans. Provide him with suitable weapons. 
weapons of divine temper. A helmet, a shield, a sword. Find and fulfill your destiny. The myth. The magic. The mystery. The majesty. Destroy Argos! Let loose the last of the Titans. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Clash of the Titans. The good. The evil. The danger. The daring. How may a mortal man face and defeat the Kraken? Clash of the Titans. The combat. The courage. The splendor. The spectacle. Clash of the Titans. Starring Harry Hamlin as Perseus. Judy Balker as Andromeda. Burgess Meredith. Maggie Smith. Ursula Andress. Claire Bloom. Sean Phillips. Flora Robeson. And Lawrence Olivier as Zeus. Before history, beyond imagination. Clash of the Titans.